Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. I hope you're all having a wonderful week and staying safe and productive and positive. If you haven't done so yet, visit thelastsymptom.com, my official website where you'll find plenty of free resources for escaping emotional unhealth, a couple of paid services, and the opportunity to support my work with a donation if you're so inclined. What is going on here lately? Out of nowhere, I've started getting all these requests from total strangers through their agents uh, to have guest spots right here on my last symptom show. Is that a thing? A whole network of podcast agents. And I'm not kidding. I'm getting about four of these a week. And all of them saying how great the last symptom show is. But then they should just shut their pie holes right there. Because the more they talk the more obvious it becomes that they haven't listened to a single episode. <laughs> oh, well, maybe we crossed a magic number of listeners or something. The last symptom is either getting famous or infamous. I ain't sure which. In less than a month, the second class of The Last Symptom live and online course begins. It's a two-week class with weekends off four hours each evening with breaks every hour. By the end, you'll have spent over 40 hours with me directly. This is the most comprehensive, intimate, personable course like this anywhere. The purpose of it is to help you lay down a solid foundation of insights and understanding that you can continue building upon for a long, long time in your personal efforts to escape emotional disorder and to enjoy a more harmonious approach to life. Participants are already beginning to enroll. So if you're interested in this experience, now is the time to secure your spot. In fact, you might want to pause the show, run over to thelastsymptom.com, and secure your spot. Uh, because I'm not going to repeat this reminder at the end of the show. So now is the reminder. The minimum number of participants is set at six, and the maximum number of participants allowed is 12. So, you know, it's not like there are just an endless number of spots available. Very few spots, in fact. And actually, I should say, the maximum number of participants allowed is 10, 
because two seats are reserved for people under financial hardship. And I'm just going to extend an, uh, a no cost to them invitation to two people. So uh, really, the maximum number of participants allowed will be 10, 10 paid participants. So very few spots. And I don't know how much longer I'll be offering this program live and in person. And that's not an attempt to pressure you into taking advantage of this class. I'm simply stating the reality of the thing. It requires an unusual amount of energy, attention, and time on my part. So I'm just not sure how many more times, if any, I'll be able to continue offering it uh, in this format. Where do you go for more information and to secure your spot in the class? You guessed it. TheLastSymptom.com click on the paid services section of the site and scroll down to West Coast Fundamentals live and online course. Clicking the button will not obligate you to pay immediately, but it will provide you with all the details so you can decide if it's for you. Several positions are already filled. Thank you for letting me make that announcement here at the beginning of the show and and getting that out of the way. Once you have had a wonderful dog... A life without one is a life diminished. Dean Koontz, author. I asked this heroic pet lover how it felt to have died for a schnauzer named Teddy. Salvador Biagiani was philosophical. He said it sure beat dying for absolutely nothing in the Vietnam War. Kurt Vonnegut, author. Dogs have given us their absolute all. We are the center of their universe. We are the focus of their love and faith and trust. They serve us in return for scraps. It is without a doubt the best deal man has ever made. Roger A. Karras, author. As with anything that has just always been a part of one's life, there's a natural human tendency to take that thing for granted. For example, have you really sat down and appreciated your nose lately? Golly, all the things that your nose does for you, and yet we rarely stop to fully appreciate what it does for us, right? Well, dogs are something that for most of my life I appreciated a lot and I wanted them in my life, but I never stopped to really think about why or how profoundly or to really allow myself to feel the good fortune of having them in my life. I sat down with my dog Bradbury this week and we had a very serious talk which I will tell you about here soon. Bradbury is a Ladner Blackmouth Cur, the old yeller dog, and he was born on a farm in Mississippi. His temporary name was Emmett. Although that's a great southern name, chock full of flavor, I renamed him Bradbury after Ray Bradbury, my favorite author. Still, 
I kept Emmett as his middle name. So his full name is actually Bradbury Emmett Barnett. I had Braddy flown to me from Mississippi all the way to Philadelphia in the summer of 2010. Ten whole years ago at the time of this recording. I was still married to my wife Diana and living in Hatboro, Pennsylvania. Which, for those of you who aren't familiar with Philly, is just one of many Philly suburbs. So, Braddy came to live with me. Exactly one year before the greatest storm of my life was about to hit. My divorce, the fallout with my mistress, the pregnancy, the miscarriage, the loss of my home, the loss of my friends. All things which would eventually lead me to discovering that I had always had borderline personality disorder and hadn't even known it. He came into my life right at the moment that would matter most as time went on. If a dog will not come to you after having looked you in the face, you should go home and examine your conscience. Woodrow Wilson, 28th President of the United States of America. I have found that when you are deeply troubled, there are things you get from the silent, devoted companionship of a dog that you can get from no other source. Doris Day, actress. Dogs don't rationalize. They don't hold anything against a person. They don't see the outside of a human, but the inside of a human. Caesar Milan, dog psychology expert. Bradbury was barely eight weeks old the day that I picked him up from the Philadelphia airport. His arrival was delayed because of the heat. You see, an airline can't fly animals if the temperatures reach a certain high, and this had happened. So I went to the airport. Imagining this frightened little baby pup, only eight meager weeks of existence in this world, having spent two days now getting jostled around, separated from his brothers and sisters and mom and dad, and how timid he would probably be when I finally met him for the first time. To my surprise, when the airport staff brought him out to meet me, in his little crate, and I carried that crate out to the parking lot and opened the front door to it. The creature, which exploded out of that crate, was not in any way, shape, or form frightened or shy. He leapt out of that crate and, with tail wagging and oversized ears bouncing and mouth open in a grin, He raced around excitedly, exploring his surroundings. He took no note of me or of Diana. He was way too excited with the world around him to be bothered by me standing there. I'll never, ever forget this about him. It was like nothing I had ever seen. And, you know, that's saying something, because I have never not 
had dogs in my life. And I know dogs very well. And I had never seen such boldness or thrill with life before at this age. No fear whatsoever in him. When I got him home, I began instructing him and giving him direction. And he ignored it all. (laughs) He rebelled against it all. As far as he was concerned, I barely existed. And he certainly wasn't going to be told what to do by me. It took incredible amounts of patience and calm assertive consistency on my part before he first started taking note that, for one, I existed. <laughs> I, was a, I was an existence in his life. And two, to begin to look at me as his master. As far as he was concerned, he was his own master only, and he had the world on a string. From the beginning, I have found this orneriness of his to be exceedingly charming and endearing. Outside of the South or Appalachia, most people don't use the term ornery to mean the same thing that we do. When I say ornery, what I mean is mischievous in an endearing way. My ex-wife Diana did not like him. She didn't want another dog to begin with. We already had two other dogs, a border collie named Farley and a little schnoodle named Flynn. There was balance there, you see. And from her point of view, Bradbury was upsetting that balance. I remember that uh, he would go around the backyard driving the other two dogs who were set in their ways by this time. Absolutely bonkers, which in turn drove my ex-wife bonkers, bless her little heart. I, on the other hand, watched Bradbury going around, the odd one out, being disliked by everybody around him, but caring very little if they liked him or not. And I felt myself developing a deep, personal attachment to him. This must have affected my dealings with him quite a bit because he began to show an unusual affection and loyalty for me, too. An affection and loyalty so profound that I have never experienced anything comparative from any other animal and from no people. Although I had borderline personality disorder in the beginning and I was completely unaware of it. I was a very serious student of Caesar Milan, and I had been reading his books and studying his techniques and gaining the insights behind those techniques very thoroughly. So I got to say, even as an emotionally unhealthy person who had not always viewed animals with an accurate, healthy attitude, I did pretty darn good with Braddy. Because of my own experience, along with Caesar Milan's insights about dog psychology, I was able to approach my dealings with Bradbury pretty healthfully right from the start, and I stuck to that approach really well, all things considered. And you know, these insights would later go on to help me in my own recovery, believe it or not. My willingness to investigate and understand dog psychology would later play a role in my willingness to study and understand my own psychology.
A dog is the only thing on earth that loves you more than he loves himself. Josh Billings, humorist. There is no faith which has never yet been broken except that of a truly faithful dog. Conrad Lorenz, zoologist. Dogs are our link to paradise. They don't know evil or jealousy or discontent. To sit with a dog on a hillside on a glorious afternoon is to be back in Eden, where doing nothing was not boring. It was peace. Milan Kundera, author. A year after I brought Bradbury home from the airport, when my life was in tatters and my wife asked me to move out and I was now alone in a small apartment in Jenkintown, I couldn't figure out any realistic way to have him with me. There was no yard, no place for a dog to romp around and play. So in the beginning, Bradbury stayed with Diana until I could get settled and established living alone. During this time, she sent me a picture of him that I deeply treasure to this day. He's sitting at the top of our stairs, staring intently down at the front door, waiting for me to come home. According to Diana, he would do this every night, and he would jump up expectantly at the sound of every approaching car. This also drove her crazy. She sent me the picture not only as a way to show me how much my dog missed me, but also as a way of telling me to come and get him and stop allowing him to stay at our house with her. I did this. One day I went to pick up Bradbury, and he came to stay and live with me permanently and forever after. We made it work. There was a baseball field across from my apartment, so almost every night I'd wait until the neighborhood was asleep, and then I'd take him over there, and he would race around and around and around that ballpark like greased lightning. I took a girl I was seeing with me and Bradbury on a backpacking trip. About a mile up the trail, I realized I had forgotten something important back in my truck, so I said, Braddy, you stay here with her. I'll be right back, buddy. And I raced back to my truck. When I returned, there he was, still sitting in the exact spot where I had left him on that trail. The girl I had with me that day sent me a picture that she had taken of Bradbury during the time that I had been gone getting the thing I had forgotten out of my truck. She said he hadn't moved from that spot nor had he stopped looking expectantly down the trail where I had disappeared from sight. This picture, like the one of him sitting and waiting for me at the top of the stairs, is another one that I treasure to this day very, very much. Girls came and went. People came and went. Jobs came and went. Our surroundings changed multiple times. Our circumstances went from easy to hard to almost unbearable, to hard, to easier. I went through highs and lows, as well as 
the most profound sadness and depression of my entire life. And through it all, there was Bradbury, my constant, loyal companion, by my side, giving me company and comfort. You can usually tell that a man is good if he has a dog who loves him. W. Bruce Cameron, author. If you don't own a dog, at least one, there's not necessarily anything wrong with you, but there may be something wrong with your life. Roger A. Karras, author. Petting, scratching, and cuddling a dog could be as soothing to the mind and heart as deep meditation and almost as good for the soul as prayer. Dean Coons, author. On one backpacking trip in the Pennsylvania wilderness, we were down in a deep holler at the end of the day, setting up camp. Bradbury was now two. I was gathering firewood off one side of the mountain, and Bradbury was by my side exploring around the rocks which were jutting out from this hillside. Suddenly, from beneath one of these jutting rocks, a big timber rattlesnake struck out at him and bit him right on the cheek. Well, what could I do? Here he was, all 65 pounds of him. His head quickly swelling to the size of a beach ball, and he was completely out of it. He could barely hold his head up, let alone walk. And we were down in a holler between two 3,000-foot-high mountains. To get him out would mean to carry him up a 3,000-foot ascent and then many miles back to my truck. Then another hour and a half drive to find an animal hospital. It just wasn't realistic to even attempt it. So I took his collar off and got everything off around his head and neck area. Then I got him comfortable on a dry pad, and I pitched a tent over him just in case the weather turned. Then I talked to him calmly and just tried to keep him comfortable until he passed out. That was a rough night. I imagined only two eventualities. Either one, he would pull through, but still be extremely sick the next day. Or two, he was going to die overnight, and I would have to bury him down in this holler the next day. To be completely honest with you, I believed reluctantly that I would be digging a grave the next day with a little hand trowel. So it was a long night, but at some point from exhaustion, I fell hard asleep, and when I woke up the next day, it was to Bradbury kissing me in the face. His head was ginormous. He looked like some weird inflated approximation of a dog. But besides the freakishly huge head, he was jumping around and wagging his tail, tongue hanging out like absolutely nothing had happened. So he was able to hike out on his own. And later that evening, when we finally tracked down a hospital that had timber rattlesnake antivenom, the doctor said, there's no way he was bitten by a timber rattlesnake. Maybe it was a copperhead. I said, 
Mister, I was right there when it happened. It was a timber rattlesnake. And he said, Well then, your dog is a tank because it has already been 24 hours and your dog seems to be doing fine. There's no reason to give him antivenom. If he was going to die, he would have died already. A dog will make eye contact. A dog will look at you as if to say, What do you want me to do for you? I'll do anything for you. Whether a dog can, in fact, do anything for you is another matter. The dog is willing. Roy Blount, Jr., author. Dogs are wise. They crawl away into a quiet corner and lick their wounds and do not rejoin the world until they are whole once more. Agatha Christie, author. The greatest fear dogs know is the fear that you will not come back when you go out the door without them. Stanley Corrin, psychologist and author. When I was a kid growing up in the Appalachian woods, dogs were just a part of life. They stayed outside, ran free, got ate up with fleas and ticks, and I'm not kidding. They would be covered in these big, fat, plump ticks. And every once in a while, my dad would pluck the ticks off of them by the dozens upon dozens. But usually, they just walked around with them. You would pet their coats, and you could feel the bumps of ticks within their fur. The dogs lived their own lives, pretty much. But they were ours, in the sense that they lived around our house. We fed them. And they serve some purpose for us, such as guard dogs and watchdogs. Do you know the difference? A guard dog prevents you from going somewhere. A watchdog barks to let you know there's somebody there. I think I was the only person out of my whole family who truly felt sentimental toward our dogs and wanted to see dogs as more than just animals running around outside. Often, when I hear Caesar Milan talk about the dogs he observed in Mexico in his youth, I see the many similarities between the attitude many Mexicans have of dogs and the way the people in my Appalachian family and culture also view dogs. Never did my family spend any money on our dogs that they didn't have to spend. We fed our dogs scraps, chicken bones, which you really should avoid doing, and just treated them with only very minor importance. It bothers me to this day. My father regularly beat and mistreated our dogs if they did anything he didn't like. And then the next day, he would treat them so tenderly as if he were just their best friend in the whole world. The memory of this still makes me nauseous. Because dogs will believe it. They will reward a person who is kind to of them now, who just yesterday was abusive toward them. I know that while petting the dogs and telling them what good dogs they were, my dad was seeing himself 
as being such a benevolent and generous guy. You know, he was using it to pump himself up about what a great guy he is. Of course, he was not including all the parts in the sickening self-delusion that would have painted a more accurate overall picture of the reality, the regular mistreatment and beatings and screaming and violence, all built upon the underlying attitude that pets were just inanimate property of his to do whatever he wanted with. All of our dogs were mutts, and many of them were drop-offs. In other words, people who didn't want their pets anymore would often drive out into the deep country down the back roads, drop off their pets in the middle of nowhere, and then drive off. So, we were never hurting for pets. I remember very clearly, in fact, walking down the old dirt road once and finding a burlap sack by the side of the road. It moved. Then it meowed. And when I opened it, there was an entire litter of kittens inside the burlap sack. I didn't know how long they'd been there, but I brought them home. Our topic today is dogs, though, not cats. One day, my dad tells me that he's heard some whining underneath our house, and he thinks a stray bitch has climbed up under there and had a litter of puppies. I was about 11 years old at the time. So while he was away, I climbed up under our house, which was a haven for wasps and snakes and Bigfoot and chupacabras. And like a soldier on his belly, I started searching around for those pups. The space under our house was only about two feet. So I was moving around in the dark on my belly, dragging myself around by my arms. Then I came up on the mom. At about 20 yards away, she bared her teeth, and with a low growl, she made it clear to me that I was not to come any closer. Even at 11, I understood very well the dangerous situation I was in. If this dog were to attack me, I'd be in a lot of trouble. I wouldn't be able to scooch myself backwards fast enough in this tiny enclosed space to get away from her. So I stayed right where I was, and I spoke to her very patiently and calmly. I spent an hour or longer with her that first day. Then I continued spending an hour under the house every day, speaking very calmly and patiently with this mama dog. And each day she would allow me to get about a foot closer than she had allowed me to get the day before. But every time she would let me know that's far enough. I just listened to her very closely and respected her wishes. When I'd leave, I'd leave a bowl of food and water for her at the place where I exited from under the house each day. After weeks of this, I was able to get right up to her and the pups, and eventually she would allow me to touch her and to touch and hold her pups. Mind you, I still took great care to do it calmly and respectfully. No startling moves or quick motions all very patient, calm, and respectful. 
science has so far been unable to tell us how self-aware dogs are, much less whether they have anything like our conscious thoughts. This isn't surprising, since neither scientists nor philosophers can agree about what the consciousness of humans consists of, let alone that of animals. John Bradshaw, author. I don't understand people who don't touch their pets. Their cat or dog is called a pet for a reason. Jared Kintz, author. Owners of dogs will have noticed that if you provide them with food and water and shelter and affection, they will think you are a god. Whereas owners of cats are compelled to realize that if you provide them with food and water and shelter and affection, they draw the conclusion that they are gods. Christopher Hitchens, author. As a boy, I had good results with this patient, calm, respectful approach to many animals, not just dogs. Cows, horses, foxes, raccoons, for example. I would talk to them, get as close as they were comfortable, then talk to them more. I'd go away and come back the next day, and they would let me get a foot closer, two feet closer, etc. Leaving a gift behind always helped. We ended up keeping the mother dog from underneath the house and one of her pups from that litter, and they became some of my favorite pets that I ever had as a boy. I have wonderful memories of gloriously blue skies and summer days running around with my dogs and sharing fascinating discoveries and moments in the woods together. Whenever I was suffering, the intense inner turmoil from the natural effects of my incredibly unhealthy family life and selfish, abusive attitudes, I would go off to myself, into the woods, to sit in loathing of myself. There was always a dirty, mistreated dog there to comfort me. There was nowhere I could go in the woods to hate on myself that these dogs could not and would not follow and find me to be a companion during those times and to sit with me in my pain. Pain that I could not understand or even begin to understand, given the circumstances and at such a young age with nobody to help me understand. And honestly, even if there had been somebody trying to explain it to me, I probably did not have the development at that point to truly grasp the nuances and finer aspects of the realities that I was dealing with anyway. Just me, a child, in the woods, in indescribable anguish, a dog by my side, and God above watching and hurting with me, and hoping I would choose to use the tools he had already given me to eventually investigate these things, work to understand them, and become a stronger person because of them. That is a painting waiting to happen. 
Dogs are greater than the sum of their parts. They are a gift. There is something in the relationship potential between them and us that defies comprehensive description or appreciation. Every time my admiration for them surges to higher heights, I still feel like that appreciation is only scratching the surface. In my late 20s and early 30s, I became my dad. Every attitude he lived with, I now lived with. Even though I hated the way my dad had been growing up, this hate of his behaviors and actions was not enough to undo the natural consequences of me now living with those same attitudes. Let me say that again. Your dislike and hate of your behaviors and actions do nothing to address and correct the underlying attitudes and perspectives you live with that are giving birth to your behaviors and actions. Therefore, hating doing something is not enough to stop you from doing it long-term or through moments of stress. Where do we get our default underlying attitudes and perspectives? We get them from our emotional teachers, which is just another way of saying our parents. And our parents can't pass on any attitude or perspective that they themselves don't live with. Do you see that? Teachers can't teach us anything that they themselves don't know or have never learned. Let's say that again. We inherit our default underlying attitudes and perspectives from observing our parents and our parents can't pass on any attitude or perspective that they themselves don't live with. Fortunately, we can correct our default underlying attitudes if we take the time to examine them with sincerity and with a little bit of help, like, for example, the last symptom. So, as much as my father's hypocritical, nauseating behaviors with pets bothered me, as much as I despised it, I sometimes behaved in similar ways in my adulthood. I fought against it, but I could only be successful in this white-knuckled fight for so much length of time, or only in ideal circumstances. Why? Because the unidentified underlying attitudes and perspectives that I was living with, which I had simply learned by observing my parents, were not harmonious with the behaviors I wished to see from myself. For example, I can wish that I was not afraid of lightning. But if I live with the underlying attitude that any time I hear thunder, lightning is going to end my life, do you see that the best I can ever hope for is to pretend not to be afraid of lightning? And no matter how hard I pretend, 
when I'm around lightning, my behaviors will betray what my true attitude is. You can't fake what your true attitude about things are for any length of time that matters because your natural behaviors born from whatever your true underlying attitudes are don't lie. What do I have to do if I want to truly not be afraid of lightning in certain circumstances rather than just pretend that I'm not? Well, I have to try to get back to the root of it, right? What attitude am I walking around with about lightning that makes me feel this fear, which then encourages me to act in fear? You see, you identify that root thing. Oh, I see. So I've been convinced that my life is in grave danger every time I hear thunder. I didn't even know that I, I believed that. But clearly, I, I was convinced of that at some point in my life. Then you figure out where that perspective came from. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, my father would always throw up his arms and run away screaming every time he heard thunder. And from this, I drew the logical conclusion that thunder means extreme danger no matter where I am. Then you fix whatever is inaccurate about that attitude, that underlying perspective. Okay, well, clearly my life is not in danger every time I hear thunder. Rather, this is true only in some very specific circumstances. Only in some very specific circumstances is it anything to truly be concerned about. As long as I'm in a house, as long as I'm not standing in an open field, as long as I'm not swimming, there's very little chance that lightning can hurt me. Okay, all right, this changes everything. I see that now. You adjust the underlying perspectives, and now your underlying attitude adjusts. Now you're no longer walking around with the attitude that your life is in danger in every single circumstance that you hear thunder. By the way, do you know what happens when you loathe some behavior from your parents, but then you grow up, and despite your hate for that behavior you begin to do the same things. And no matter how hard you tried not to do those things, you know that you're just holding back the water of a broken dam, that your efforts not to behave in those ways can only be successful in small spurts. What happens given this? Well, it reinforces and feeds the primary underlying be false belief that you already live with that is the cause of your emotional disorder. So do you see the wheel that is beginning to turn? It reinforces and feeds the lie, the false belief that you are broken. That what you are dealing with is an inherent defect. Do you see that? You're really only behaving this way because of a skewed attitude you were taught, but you don't realize this yet. Instead, you're convinced that you've inherited some sort of genetic defect and that this involves some inherent defect with you.
So, you try to control behavior with white knuckles without addressing the true cause, the underlying attitude that you've been taught. And when you inevitably fail, what does the failure seem to prove? That yes, you are inherently defective because no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you loathe this behavior, you always end up doing these things you truly wish you wouldn't do. And it's all coming from attitudes that you were taught, from underlying perspectives, nothing inherent to you at all. So during my recovery, what were some of the attitudes that I had to identify and correct in order for my behaviors to adjust more healthfully as just a natural consequence? See, emotionally healthy people aren't walking around trying not to be abusive. Do you understand that? They're not sitting around trying to not mistreat their pets or their kids or their partners. Emotionally healthy people don't have to try not to do this because they aren't living with any unhealthy underlying attitude creating these sorts of behaviors in the first place. So what attitude adjustments did I identify and correct in order to no longer have to try to not mistreat my pets? Number one, I have inherent worth. From this, pretty much everything else sprouts. I have inherent value. And because of this, I don't sit around loathing myself and suffering the inner pain, discontent, and frustration of believing that all my worth is dependent on what other people think of me or on what I do or on what I accomplish. Since I don't live with all this suffering and inner discontent, I don't lash out at others for what's really bothering me inside about myself. Besides this, do you know what sorts of things a person who loathes himself does? Well, loathsome things. See, because we're talking about the way one perceives their inherent nature. If you perceive yourself as inherently loathsome, you may want to be a good person, but what you wish and what you do to the contrary does not have any effect whatsoever on how you just perceive yourself to inherently be. Remember, a piece of shit that does a bunch of good deeds is still a piece of shit. So, if you don't think perspective on this, on this detail, the inherent nature of how we view ourselves, how we view our inherent natures, our understanding of that, if you don't think that has power over you, you you got a lot of work to do. So people living with this lie at the foundations of their perspective that they don't have worth, that they, they have to earn their worth, that they don't have inherent value. They will do some pretty shitty things. What does a person who views their inherent nature as loathsome what is that person motivated to do? Loathsome things. Number two, if I have inherent worth, then other living things also have inherent value too. 
It's not dependent on what they do or don't do or if I agree with them or do not agree with them. It doesn't even matter if I like them at all. Me liking you or not liking you has no bearing whatsoever on your inherent worth. Number three, other people and other living things are not inanimate suppliers or deniers of my needs and wants. What do I mean by not being inanimate suppliers or deniers? What I mean is that they don't just exist for me. You know, I'm not in a video game, and the universe around me isn't a product of my consciousness. Other living things do not exist just for what they provide me, or just for what they bring to my life. They have their own needs, and oftentimes their own feelings. And for whatever they provide my life, I have the same potential. I serve the same purpose for their lives, which includes with it all the same responsibilities that are included in such an interaction or arrangement. In other words, I'm more of a fellow traveler through life rather than a master of all that surrounds me. Number four, the law of capacity versus ability. What's the difference, and how has it helped bring my attitude about my pets into a healthier place? Well, I have the capacity to play the banjo, but I don't have the ability to play the banjo because I have never learned. That's the difference between capacity and ability. Now, the possibility for playing the banjo exists within me. So even though I'm unable to play it, the expectation for me to play the banjo is not necessarily unreasonable, even though I do lack the ability. And the reason for this is that I possess the capacity to do it. If only I take the time to learn. However, one thing that is not even a little bit reasonable is if somebody places an expectation on me involving something I am incapable of doing. In other words, I I couldn't do it no matter how much I try or want to do that thing. This has tremendously affected my temperament in an extraordinarily healthy way in my dealings with pets and children and other people. It has given me patience that I once would have believed was impossible. I no longer fly into a rage when a puppy chews up my brand new shoes, for example. Why not? Because puppies are incapable. Notice, I didn't say they're just unable. They are incapable of knowing what shoes are for or that they are shoes at all or that they're new shoes, or what I paid for them, or how much I like them. The puppy just needs something to chew. Yeah, you heard me correctly. The puppy needs to chew. This is a canine need, and especially a puppy need. Yes, once a puppy matures into an adult dog, in the course of their development, 
they gain the capacity to learn that shoes are not something they should chew on. But just like people, some capacities only come along with natural development. For example, human adults are capable of many things that human children are totally incapable of. So what you can reasonably expect of human adults is not in any way the same sorts of things that you can reasonably expect from human children. This is true for animals too. It is not reasonable in any way to expect your canary to take care of your house while you're away. So when you come home and find that the grass has not been mowed and the door was left open and the air conditioner is turned too low, getting angry at your canary for her quote-unquote failure is simply idiotic. This change in my perspective has been tremendous in my life. Number five, the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority. Let's focus on responsibility. Who it belongs to and who it does not belong to. And let's go back to the puppy chewing on my brand new boots. There was a time that this would have made me fly into a rage, but how much sense does it make for me to fly into a rage when A, I recognize the puppy's incapable of knowing better. Incapable, not just unable, but incapable. Couldn't even if it wanted to. And B, I realized that the puppy was only able to chew the shoes because I myself failed to put the shoes in a place where the puppy couldn't get to them. Or I failed, I failed to properly supervise the puppy. Now if I'm going to get mad, who is the only person I can reasonably be mad at? Myself, right? And because I now genuinely like myself, now that I'm living with the understanding that I am lovable and I have inherent worth, am I going to be abusive to myself? No, I'm not. I'm not going to be abusive to myself. That's not what you naturally do to people you genuinely like. How do you naturally treat people that you genuinely like and care about? You treat them with patience, understanding, and compassion, don't you? So not only am I now not feeling furious at my puppy because he lacks the capacity to know better, and it's idiotic to expect things that are impossible from others, but... I also recognize that I had a responsibility, not the puppy, and that it was I who failed in that responsibility. But then, I'm not going to be abusive toward myself because I like myself and I care about myself. So instead, I'm going to patiently take a moment to put all these things into context because that's what we're all naturally willing to do for those we truly like and care about. And then... I'm going to feel compassion and say, All right, Brian, you made a mistake here. I reckon that'll teach you. See, the new perspectives and attitudes have totally robbed me of any possibility of getting angry or of treating my puppy or myself irrationally. It's a beautiful thing. Back 
to Bradbury. The old boy is now 10. He has slowed down a lot. He's been my constant companion all through my recovery. I'm beginning to think of his mortality and the fact that he won't always be with me. So I sat with him the other night, and I had a nice long talk with him. I told him what a wonderful dog he has been. In fact, of all the dogs that I have had the great pleasure of knowing, he has been the best companion of them all. He has seen me at my unhealthy worst, and I'm happy to say that for most of his life now, he's enjoyed me at my healthy best. He stared at my face quietly the whole time we had this conversation, with a deeper, wiser understanding of it all in his eyes than you can imagine. I expressed my deep regret for any moments when I had been unreasonable or selfish, and I shared my great gratitude with him for being my loyal companion despite it all. Whether he understood any of this or not is sort of irrelevant. They were all things I wanted to be sure that I had explicitly expressed to him. Nonetheless, while he's still healthy and here with me. On our last backpacking trip together, he struggled. It was really the first time that his aging became more than an abstract concept to me. Bradbury, the tank struggling to cover five miles with very little weight in his pack. He's sleeping a lot more than usual. He still has his moments when the puppy inside of him comes out, just like he exploded outside of that crate ten years ago in the Philadelphia airport parking lot. But these moments are getting further and farther between. The other day I had a friend whose dog died. His dog was about the same size as Bradbury. And uh, that dog was 17, 17 years old when he finally laid down for the last time and never woke up. As sad as I am for my friend's loss, it gives me hope that I might still enjoy Bradbury's company for at least another seven years, but who knows? Even if he does manage to stick around for another seven years, he certainly won't be able to do all the things with me that we did in the first ten. This is already a current reality. Finally, to further demonstrate my enormous respect and affection for my buddy, I decided that in Bradbury's honor... I would dedicate this episode of The Last Symptom to him, which I've now seen through. Now thousands of people will know what a truly exceptional friend he has been to me and some of his story. I've learned a lot from other people, but I don't think I've ever learned so much from one animal as I have with old Braddy and I'm still learning 
Words cannot express the appreciation I feel at having had him with me when I needed him most. During my divorce, after my divorce, during the leanest and most difficult times of my life, when I had literally nothing else and felt utterly lost, and now, years on the other side of recovery, while life is relatively calm and relatively peaceful. Through it all was that boy and the comfort of a dog, the best dog in the world, and the Lord above watching. You can't help but wonder if that boy had the comfort of the best dog in the world because the Lord above was watching.